Before we start this podcast, we would like to acknowledge the true locals, the First Nations people who have been custodians of the lands, waters and cultures for tens of thousands of years. We pay respect to First Nations elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that this podcast is taking place on Gadigal land in Australia, where sovereignty was never ceded. Pete Seglinski is the CEO and founder of Seabim, a company that's dedicated to tackling one of the biggest problems facing our oceans today, plastic pollution. Pete is a passionate environmentalist and entrepreneur who, along with Andrew Button, invented the Seabin, an innovative device that works like a floating trash can, sucking in plastic and other debris from the water's surface. We talked about Pete's fascinating journey, which led him to this point in his life, the struggles of a startup journey, his love for the ocean and surfing, and his outlook on the future of the marine eco-space. It was a big honor to have Pete in the show as a lifelong fan of him and his organization. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Ocean Matters Podcast, powered by Board Socks, with your host, Dan O'Connell. Got uh, Pete Seglinski on the podcast today, um, co-founder of Seabin. Uh, really big honour to have him on the podcast. Been trying to track him down for a couple of years now, so really grateful that you can make the time for us, mate, and get on. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for your patience, and uh, yeah, stoked. Finally, got me in a room, and yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So. Um, yeah, look, before we jump into um, all the good work that CBN's been doing and has done already, um, would you mind telling us a bit about where you grew up and what was life like growing up? Uh, yeah, so I grew up in <clears throat> the hinterland of Byron Bay in the Byron Shire, a little town, well, it's not the town, just an area called Gooningary, and it was a 30 acres, half of it was rainforest and the other half was... Um, orchards and tropical fruit trees and my parents were from Newcastle and they wanted to be hippies and just sell weed for a living and so they moved up to Byron and literally started doing it. <laughs> um, and yeah, so uh, me and my brothers, we grew up on 30 acres of just epicness and it was, it was pretty wild. Um, we didn't have like TV reception, there's no internet. Uh, we were, you know, out like lighting fires and making cubby houses. And when we were about 10, um, we moved down to the beaches down at Ocean Shores and we'd started nippers when we were um, six or seven, I think. And, and the natural progression for me was to surf. Um, so you know, we used the surf club as like stashing our boards in there and had to do the nipper thing and um, yeah, yeah, it was pretty wild living around that area back then. And Sounds like the absolute dream. Sounds like the antidote that every kid growing up now on an iPad just needs in, in the early childhood just growing up and being one with, with nature and being outside all day. Um, how many brothers and sisters do you have? I've got a twin brother um, and I've got a little brother, Andy, so I'm I was born in 78, I'm turning 45 this year, so my little brother is like 40 or 41 or something. Nice. But yeah, we, we all you know, grew up on the ocean and in the bush and you know, there was no screen, so it was just green time. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And, and kind of when you, your relationship with the ocean did start, um, what kind of mediums or expressions did you start off with? Was it straight to surfing or did, did you kind of start with other activities? Oh, we, I, I remember like when we were groms, we were in the dam, like we had this creek that went into a dam and um, me and my brothers, had, we, would, we would put like big rocks in our pockets of our shorts and put a mask on and we'd get this big long bit of poly pipe and we would go to the bottom of the dam and, and breathe through the pipe, but we would, to keep ourselves down, you know, we had rocks in our pockets and we were looking for yabbies and, um, and then it, I remember it progressed into swimming lessons at the local pool and I used to do really well at swimming and and one of my mates was in nippers and so I just wanted to hang with him and, and then went to nippers and like I did the surf club till I was about 18 and I've got a couple of Australian titles for swimming and state titles and stuff but 
yeah, I just wanted to surf and like the surf club scene at Browns was pretty casual, like it like there was no hectic dickheads like down in the city and the clubbies and stuff, but um yeah, we just wanted to surf. So we'd do the competition or nithers and just go try and get barreled on two foot closeouts and you know, go fishing and pretty much just spend all of our time in the water. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like an amazing childhood. Um what was your local beach and did you kind of get up and down the coast much to explore all the other beaches? Yeah, so the local beach was um, Brunswick Heads and so we had the river mouth to surf which was amazing. Um, north Wall uh, which is literally on the north side of the river mouth and it starts off with a patch of reef and then it just winds up into a long um, sandbank and then South Wall like you just got peak after peak and like well at the time from memory it was like close out after close out but yeah like you'd paddle out and you'd have the peak to yourself or a bank to yourself and if someone paddled out on your bank you just paddle up the beach a little bit and get your own and yeah didn't have to deal with crowds till I moved to Sydney uh, when I was 20 like 21 or something 20 actually yeah Where, whereabouts in Sydney did you settle in uh, I I well, of all places, I went out to Maryfield because my auntie and uncle were there. And then, like, within a week, I was like, I'm out of there. And I was living in Manly, in the ghetto at uh, Manly Vale. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, for $200 a week in, like, a two-bedroom apartment. And, uh, yeah, so my new local was North Stain. Um, and, yeah, it was epic. And I'd just never seen so many people surfing in one spot before. And, but I got, like, good hustle skills you know, from surfing in the crowds and stuff. It's pretty sick. For sure. I've never actually, I've never met anyone that frosts harder than someone that's grown up surfing Bondi. I met a couple of mates when we're traveling overseas and like we're still best friends now. And it just gets you excited to surf with someone that can see like an onshore two foot rip ball with no one on it and just be like, this is the best day of my life. Like, (laughs) and just looking at waves the way you never have. Like, man, if that was Bondi, that way it would be equally as bad and there'd be 20 people on it. So let's get out there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The best day is just like when, you know, people are like, oh, it's not offshore enough, it's not tight enough and you just, like, just go and uh, end up having fun. 100%. So um, before seeding, um, what was your profession before, before that? Uh, I, I, I've got, I'm on my third life. Uh, so my first life... Um, I moved to Sydney to study at the Enmore Design School and then I moved over to Perth a couple of years later to finish it off and uh, so I, um, I, I was a product designer or an industrial designer uh, so I was engineering, designing uh, 3D modelling products, uh, children's toys, medical equipment, um, really cool shit like toasters and kettles <laughs> and uh, the irony of that is um, some of the stuff that I designed is possibly in our oceans because I specialised in plastic injection moulding. And uh, but I, I quit that uh, because I'm like when I design stuff, I really wanted to keep it as simple as possible. And I, I just saw there was a lot of stuff that I was designing at a consultancy that wasn't really needed. Um, colours would change, curves would change. Um, you know, design elements would change from year to year, like fashion, and every time it changed, you had a new product, and, you know, they weren't designed to be fixed, and, you know, long story short, I just sort of bailed and um, went over to Brazil and was just surfing at this, like, remote beach for a few months and, you know, living on, like, $5 a day. And uh, I ended up getting into boat building in Italy for America's yacht racing. Um from a bunch of mates that I've met in uh, the Northern Beaches and it snowballed into a 12 year career of traveling the world, getting paid like mega bucks. I didn't have a bill, I didn't pay for a flight for like 12 years um, uh, for working for the Volvo Ocean Race, America's uh, Cup racing teams, uh, TB52s and uh, yeah, sailing and working around the world and I would just roll with a backpack a suitcase and a surfboard. And wow. It was that sounds, yeah, that's quite the pivot. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, and so that, that was where I met my um, business partner, co-founder, 
Uh, we were travelling around the world with the yacht racing teams, I was with an American team, he was with the Russians. Uh, we were in China and you know we just ended up being friends and then a few years later he told me about Seabin and I was like, well I used to do that shit for a living in a design consultancy because you know he had this idea and he he built this prototype but it was like I was like what are you gonna do with it? And he's like, oh I was thinking about selling for fifty bucks at Bunnings and I was like, oh I think I think there's more to it than that, eh? And uh, yeah, we buddied up and just went for it. Wow, take taking it back um, the step. So were you like changing the designs of boats? Were you, were you trying to like every every time you were working on one, are you trying to make it better, or are you just kind of fixing the existing structure, or was it a bit of like R and D on your end, or no, no, they they had like like racing teams that I was working for, we had like a two hundred and eighty million dollar budget, wow, and so they had these like you know, NASA type scientists, like engineers, just like these crazy brain people. Um, building the fastest boats on the water and uh, and so I was the boat builder so I was always been good with tools I've got all my fingers a little bit of common sense and you know it goes a long way and if you can get along with people because it's a really high pressure gig and you're in a foreign country like you'll be you'll be living in Italy for two years and you don't speak Italian and you know so you've got to get on with the team and if you've got a bit of common sense and you can get along like you, you'll go far and so yeah, my gig was literally just following the plans, building moulds, building the boats, um, and then as it progressed to other teams, there was a few instances where I could do a bit of design, a bit of engineering, and like I've still got all the programs that I used to use, and yeah, yeah, so a bit of everything, but I got to be on the water and uh, travel the world. Yeah, it's such a fascinating insight, and I'm sure while you were kind of travelling the world, you were also seeing so much of what was going on in the ocean which probably laid the foundations for for some of what you wanted to do at um Seabin. um so how did you go about this first prototype um, up and running like who were some of the initial people that were around to kind of help develop it because you, you were with your mate who already had something but did, did you go like that first model Probably wasn't the model that you took to market. You, there was a bit of nah, nah, it was, thought um, process that went behind it, and yeah. So I mean, like when Andrew and I decided we we're going to do something, we probably spent like two years just talking shit every Friday over a couple of beers about you know what we could do or blah blah blah. Because like I had a an epic career boat building that like I was getting paid a lot of money and I didn't have any bills and it was like. You know, what bank account, what currency do you want to be paid in? And, and it was really hard to leave, but the good thing was, like, I knew I was going to leave, so I saved up, like, 70 grand, and, uh, and uh, I, was, I was working in Italy, and I just quit and went snowboarding for a couple of weeks, went to the Mentorwise for a week, um, and, yeah, so the first design, I designed it, uh, sorry, well, Andrew had the prototypes, but they were a bit rough, it was two garbage bins, a lot of Sikaflex, a lot of duct tape, that sort of thing, and and I just knew that you know we needed to um, we we couldn't we couldn't use off the shelf items because it was a bit specialised and and so I think I designed it where we'd got down from like seventeen moving parts maybe down to about ten moving parts and made it all out of stainless steel like it literally weighed like fifty kilos and um, we. Um, yeah, we just made it happen and, you know, we already had like some learnings from his prototypes and, uh, yeah, it was epic and we made a crowdfunding video. Yeah, um, I think I saw that actually back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah that thing went viral. Like, yeah. over 12 months or maybe a touch more, there's more than a billion views Wow. Uh, throughout the internet because nobody had seen the most obvious thing in the world, which mm. was a rubbish bin in the water. And it just went, like, through the roof. It's pretty wild that no one previous to you had thought about that like rubbish bins are everywhere yeah and well, just putting one in the water to deal with plastic pollution like it does make so much sense yeah well the, the, the lateral thought that kicked things off was if you have rubbish bins on land why don't you put them in the water because there's enough crap in the water to you know to validate that and um but yeah so people were pissed as well oh it's just a bucket you put in the water i can do that 
you know, what's so special about it. And, and bucket in the water. Yeah, like, you know, we get a bunny to buy a bucket, we'll just put it in the water. Yeah. And blah, blah, blah. We're like, cool, yeah. go for it. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, what were some, like, what were people around you saying at the time? Um, were people, like, people you're close to supportive? They were a bit like, what are you doing? You've got such a good career doing this thing. Why don't you just stay, keep doing that and do less of this crazy in the water rubbish bin idea? Like, what were the people around you? What the majority of the people around me thought I was just an idiot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, well, like, you know, I had a good job and a career and blah, 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 but, like, you know, you, you're so dumb, like, you'll never do anything, It'll, it won't fix the problem, you know, you're only getting this much per day, you'll never fix the 18 million tons that go in or whatever it is and I was like just fuck off <laughs> give it a go <laughs> yeah 100% and I was daydreaming about this for ages and uh, you know I, I knew I was going to quit I just didn't know when and um, yeah people were actually kind of pretty negative uh, which I don't even care about like I just I just knew that this was a good thing the gut feel was there and if they didn't see it like I, I was actually felt a bit sad for them uh, you know, but you know that's just added to the fire. And um, when we built the first one out of stainless steel, uh, we we got some attention. We went to a trade show and we said, um, you know, we we set up this seaman and we went to the world's biggest marine trade show in Amsterdam. It cost us like fifteen thousand dollars, and that was like all the money we had. And we had a business model. We we're going to like sell the services. We we'll keep your marina cleaner, and no one give a shit. Like, no one cared, we didn't make a dollar, we just pissed up the wall, like 15 grand. But then this one dude kept talking to us, and he was like, it was a bit odd, a bit weird, but like super friendly, but you know, he didn't know if it was like um, trying to be over friendly to steal your shit or something. Uh, and then one thing led to another, and um, he was from a marina building company, and they manufactured plastic pontoons, and we ended up making a partnership with them and we went into rotational moulding um, which was plastic and and so we had to redesign the sea bin and we ended up partnering with them and scaled into 53 countries in two years and uh, that was pretty amazing but it was a huge liability that like nearly sent us bankrupt a few times because we had no control. Um, but going back to the prototype, I bought a 3D printing machine and the prototype that I'd engineered for rotational moulding at 1 to 1 was about a metre high. And so I scaled it back to 1 to 10. And uh, so it was 10 centimetres high, or, or more or less. Um, and bought a fish tank, filled it up with water, put a little fish pump, connected it all up and turned it on, and it worked. And so, yeah, I, I 3D printed a little mini one, and we still got it, and then committed to, like, Oh, it was about $200,000 to um, commit to the tooling and the mould making and, and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, that, that was how we did it. Wow. So it's amazing that you just managed to listen to your gut through all that and then you just meet those one key person that can kind of kick things off. Like, didn't know if he was a weirdo or someone that's a key, key figure and he just yeah. turned out to be the latter. It's so cool. Well, he did turn out to be a bit of a weirdo at the end <laughs> and uh, that was like the... Like, yeah, kind of, you know, we scaled up so much. There was like $6 million worth of product in the water, but the company that we partnered with were, they were doing stuff we didn't know about. They were doing things that they shouldn't have. Um, it was just sus, hey? And, and so we just, we just pulled the pin on it and everyone and the network. And, you know, we said, like, we're going out on our own. We're not even going to sell CVNs anymore. And, um, yeah, like, we just... We just lost control of the brand, of the okay. product. We couldn't maintain it. It wasn't financially sustainable. I designed these sea bins to, to last for like 15 years, and but you only sell them once, but you need money to make shit happen, right? And so it was like, how the hell do we get recurring annual income? And so I took inspiration from software as a service and swapped out, yes, the software for sea bin and um, yeah. We, so, so that's where the pivot came from when you're talking about you guys now mainly make money from collecting data. Yeah. There was that breakdown in the relationship there and you guys just being like, yeah, this isn't working. Yeah, yeah, it got to this like crazy 
pinnacle of stress and anxiety and, and bad juju where we're like, we're just going to cut you guys loose um, and uh, we, we're going to do the opposite, which was at the time seemed like the dumbest idea in the world. Um, but the gut feel told me that we could, you know, that this, is, this could be a thing. And so what we did was we raised uh, $1.7 million uh, using an equity crowdfunding platform. People buying shares for 250 bucks, $500, 1000 bucks. What, what platform is that? Is that just crowdfunding? Well, virtual. Oh, we did a virtual. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we raised a million dollars in a day. Yeah. From, and, and like people were giving us $500. Like no one gave us more than like $50,000. There was no fat cat that came in and said, here's a million dollars, boys, you know, go for it. And the shit thing was like, I worked for billionaires that had yacht racing teams with $50 million budget, $100 million, 200 mil, and not one of them like ponied up and said, hey, Pete, like this is sick, here's some coin. Like, yeah, it was, it was my friends and their parents and just regular people that cared for the environment and like all the richies like just kept their money in their pockets. That's so heavy. Yeah, yeah that's why they're rich. There's a lot. Right? Yeah. Besides that funding, um, what kind of advice would you give to other Enviro entrepreneurs with great ideas but not necessarily the resources like, like you had um, to get off the ground? Well, I didn't even have a resource. Like, actually, no, I did. I had, I had 70K and uh, it didn't go very far. Like, when you're incorporating a business and you've got to pay legal fees, like, those people just suck the juice out of your wallet. Um, and so we did the crowdfunding, which was 360000 uh, which I stretched out for two years. And, like, I was living in a garage in Spain, like, just on, like, bowl of rice sort of shit, hey? Like, I never put more than 20 bucks of diesel into my van, and I just thought one day we're going to be so successful that I can just fill the tank up. You know, it might be 80 bucks. So my measure of success for like four years was if I could put more than 20 bucks of diesel in the van. Um, and, uh, Killing it. But yeah, so um, you don't need a million dollars, half a million dollars. You need, a, you need an idea that, you know, like the best idea I think Richard Branson said was, you know, if you can help the environment or help others, like that's a great idea. Um, the other thing is, if you, if you really want to make an impact, you've got to work out, is it a passion project or is this something that's going to be substantial? Because I'm still renting. We've got a multi-million dollar business and like we've kept it, we're just bootstrapping. I'm still renting, like, you know, I, my $4,000 car blew up just a few days before Christmas. And, uh, you know, so we're just keeping it lean. And uh, it was crowdfunding, there was accelerators, uh, there was, then, it, then it became equity crowdfunding. So if a venture capitalist or an impact investor doesn't believe in you, like, who gives a shit? You can go to virtual, you know, do a pitch video and, and tell people on a platform about your idea and people can help you with 250 bucks. Like we've raised a mill in a day, uh, three days later COVID hit and we still managed to raise like another 720,000 and but it was like small denominations that added up of people that cared for the environment, saw someone having a go and possibly could get a return um, because a lot of, there's, there's a lot of business models in the ocean sector that are not that robust and so if you can't make money, people won't invest in you uh, traditionally. Um, so yeah I suggest everyone like go virtual crowdfunding and, yeah there's you know. new platforms that are opening up sounds like you guys have done that really well from crowdfunding early to to virtual now I'm sure there's probably a lot of good other ones that are, uh, are coming to fruition as well in that space because there definitely needs to be more funding for projects like these like I'm sure there's so many good ideas out there that young teenagers and young adults are going to have that just want to get off the ground and it seems like without that funding it seems like such yeah. a monumental task yeah. like it's the, um, the, the other thing I think like that I should point out is like it's okay to make money it's it's actually necessary like I don't know anyone that doesn't spend money to live their life or pay the rent or buy food or anything like you know if you're living under a rock okay you don't need money but like I want to buy a house I want to 
I've got two kids, you know. Um, I don't need lots of yachts and stuff. I just, you know, want a house and a few boards and just... It, it, it takes money to make money to make impact. And, uh, you know, I took a lot of inspiration from Patagonia. Um, you read the book, Let My People Go Surfing. Yeah, they go surfing, but they're kicking ass. They've got a billion dollar business that they donate $100 million a year to fixing the environment and they best make the best clothes in the world that last forever and everything's got a responsible conservation kind of aspect to it that, like, I just man-crushed the shit out of them. Yeah, big time. They're so good. And you can tell, like, it's, it's not just greenwashing, it's in their DNA. Like, everything they do is, is trying, to be, trying to be better and... Yeah, like definitely our company looks up, like we want to be the Patagonia of the surf accessories world, like that's, that's our goal. Um, so yeah, besides that, those kind of the money hurdles, what were some of the other biggest hurdles CB had in its, in its infancy? I don't know, like, I would say naivety, but that's also my biggest superpower. If I knew how much pain and effort and you know, all that jazz that went into this whole journey to get where we are today, I probably wouldn't have done it. Um, so na naivety was like a huge superpower, but also a hurdle because uh, I was building boats and now you're in the climate tech, clean tech sort of enviro space and uh, you're in the deep end. Uh, so the hurdles was how do you upskill quickly and just sponge all that information and um, like when one door closed, like I needed to open six more doors to find a you know, to navigate the path forwards, but I don't know, I kind of froth on that stuff. Like, I really like the personal development, I like the professional development, and I always ask the dumb questions. Like, what's that word mean? Well, sometimes I get, like, the conscious, and so I write it down and I'll just Google it, and no one knows or something. But, um, yeah, the biggest hurdle that we're facing, though, is, um, is as we're scaling, we've realised that clean-up is not a solution it's uh you know it's needed but you know you gotta turn off the tap before you clean clean up but we're, we're doing both so we're trying to turn off the tap so the stuff going into the water which is prevention education but it's actually all driven by data uh, which is totally foreign to me um, but data is what makes the world go around like i i if you had told me a couple of years ago pete you need data i'd be like bugger off, I'm busy doing real things that I can touch and kick, you know. And, uh, but we, we need to, we're, we're starting to work with local, state and federal government, but they want proof that this thing works, um, and so they want data. And, you know, if we can change the world, it's using data to create policy and legislation and, you know, banning the bags or spending $300 million to restore Sydney Harbour. Um, you have data that monitors the project. Is it working? Is it going backwards? Is it going forwards? This type of thing. And so, I don't know if those are hurdles, but that's like just a few pain points. And yeah, no, definitely. And it's interesting that like that theme of data comes up. Um, just yeah. have to watch the social dilemma. Uh, yeah. Seen that on Netflix. Actually, the mega, the mega hurdle that we come up against was was uh, we deployed a pilot here in Sydney in a new business model where we weren't selling CBNs, we were selling services. Data was like a byproduct. And, um, but when we went to the city, officials, they're like, it's not our problem, can't prove it's ours, it's not even our problem anyway, it's a city water or transport or there's like 14 different jurisdictions. And, and so the first hurdle was accountability the finger guns come out, it's like, oh, it's them over there, it's them over there, can't prove it's us. And then the second one is governance, because plastic pollution is new, uh, so relatively new. There's no, uh, there are some laws, but there's not enough laws to address this new problem. And uh, yeah, so that was a major hurdle, but it just fired me up uh, to be where we can prove it's somebody's, like, yeah, it's yeah. fucking happy. Big time. Um, before we kind of delve a bit more into that um, later, can you briefly explain to the audience like what a CBN is, how it works really quickly? Yeah, so a CBN is like the most obvious thing in the world. Um, you just put a rubbish bin in the water and it operates like a pool skimmer. Uh, so we put it in the water in marinas, yacht clubs and infrastructure. We don't put it out in the ocean and it's not floating around, it's fixed. 
we stick it on a floating dock so that the dock goes up and down with the tide, the seabed moves up and down. It's got a pump in the bottom, it's got a filter in the middle, and so water comes in over the top. We skim 10, 10 millimetres of surface water and it flows through the filter. The plastic stops in the filter and the water keeps passing through and back into the ocean a lot cleaner. And uh, yeah, we've filtered in the last two years here in Sydney, uh, we filtered 14 billion litres of water and captured over 100 tonnes of microplastics and plastic fibres and stuff and prevented it from heading to the ocean. It's so, so simple but so genius at the same time. Um, how many models have you had now? How many updates and new additions from the original one? Yeah, so from the original, we're on number six. Um, but the commercial version was five, so we had uh, four, four different prototypes uh, before the world saw anything. And so the commercial version was the rotationally moulded, we just called it the V5. And the next one we reshored, uh, we got a grant from the federal government to reshore our manufacturing from France back to Australia. So we do everything in Australia now. And, uh, yeah, we called it the 6.0 because the V6 just sounded a bit bogan, um, you know. So holding Commodore down the yeah, local on a yeah, Friday so, night. Uh, just um, we're not that creative with the names that we give things, but it just makes sense. Sounds good. It's, it's truly if you're going to bring it back, manufacturing back to Australia, then calling it the V6 is pretty spot on. <laughs> Next on the V8. <laughs> Yeah, um, too many like enviro, like there's a lot of people passionate with the environment, they just start kicking off and you know, they spot something that's not perfect and yeah, um, yeah. but yeah, 6.0 is where we're at with the latest one, which that's, is pretty soon. That's cool. And how many countries um, are you guys operating in? How many bins are collecting trash? Yeah, or, so we, or data, uh, I should say. <laughs> we, we, from 2018 to 2020, we scaled into 53 countries. Uh, we saw it wasn't sustainable in all senses of the word, so we just uh, kind of stopped that and focused on, like we, we thought that we could clean up an entire city or the waterfront, manage the waterways, which we focused on Sydney. Uh, and so we gave it a three-year runway over on a 10-year plan. And so currently we now clean up Sydney Harbour. We have 32 units, there's uh, seven or eight, full-time employees down here in Sydney, um, a couple of vans, a boat, uh, we built a microplastics lab, two full-time scientists working in it, and we're doing the same in Los Angeles now, and then at the end of this year it'll be Barcelona. So we have a, we have a scaling plan uh, where we needed proof of concept of what we did in Sydney worked, and so it, it worked. Um, and so if we figured if we do it in Sydney, we'd do it in LA, uh, Europe, and then we can get to 100 cities by 2050. Just copy and paste. Um, what we've done is we have a great relationship with Patagonia, uh, a few other brands that are really environment, community, outdoor focused, and whatever city we go to, we just make sure that they're around, and so we can tap into an instant, you know, community network. And um, yeah, it, it's absolutely epic. That's um, awesome. It's kind of scary, like. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of plastic pollution in the world in a lot of cities, but yeah. How, how are you picking the cities and what, what kind of things are you finding? Uh, Sydney we had to pick, uh, just well it's, it's obviously one of the world's greatest harbours, but um, it was a no-brainer, it's in our backyard, like I live in Byron, you know, Sydney's in New South Wales, and yeah, we just figured we'll start with Sydney, uh, and then North America is a huge market for us, market opportunity. And so we figured if you're going to make some noise, you should go to LA. Uh, so we focused on LA in Marina del Rey. And then, so that ticks the North America market box. And then Europe is the next biggest market. And so we'll be launching in Barcelona at the end of this year. And next year, the America's Cup is in Barcelona as well, which should bring like millions of tourists just for the event. Uh, so yeah, it's... Yeah, we're going to stick with the three cities for about five years, get them going, get them on a roll, and then start adding uh, three or four cities per year as we scale. Yeah, it's awesome, mate. Um, from all the data you've been able to collect, what are kind of some of the, of the biggest insights into what changes are happening in our oceans and, and the marine environment? Yeah, so all the, 
data, we've got, um, geez, we've got so much data. Uh, we've got five or six scientists that work for us on the data side of things. Um, the insights, 12,821 plastic items are captured every day here in Sydney. Uh, this is one plastic item captured every six seconds. Like, it's, it's phenomenal. We're getting 1,100 soft plastics every single day. Um, the number one item is microplastics, which is scary as hell. We don't know the, like, nobody in the world knows the actual impact of what microplastics will have on the economy, um, our health and the environment, because it's so new. Um, but the financial impact is going to be incredible because it starts with tourism. So let's say you go to Bali and uh, unfortunately because of climate change, it's now onshore and all the crap of Indonesia and Bali that goes out to sea comes back onto the beach and now you're at Kuta or Bingen or somewhere or Ulu, um, just full of plastic and crap. And, you know, if you, if you experience that, like, you possibly won't want to go back because it taints your holiday and it's cleaner destinations is now becoming a thing in travel and tourism. So you have tourism is, you know, one of Australia's biggest things. And so if you have a tainted experience due to pollution, like, you're going to see a reduction in tourists, which means a reduction in hotels, um, restaurants, like, anything to do with tourism is going to, you know, be affected by plastic pollution. Um, the economic impact falls down to food and beverage, it falls down to the packaging industry, it, uh, it affects the seafood economy. Um, a lot of people are getting information quickly from the internet, from social media. There's plastics in our fish, there's plastics in sushi, we're getting plastic in us. So people are going to be reducing their intake of fish because of microplastics and if you reduce your intake of fish, um, small you know fishing industries are going to start to suffer like yeah the, the knock-on effect is incredible even coming down to uh health the impact of our health where you know we're starting to see links to cancer from plastic and you know the ocean is full of it so there is an impending disaster coming that we don't know about and we need to act now yeah absolutely and um just on that that health thing like do you think if you Every time you go into the ocean and you swallow a mouthful of water, or maybe you have a few mouthfuls of water, what are the chances you think you'd be swallowing some microplastics? In the, um, I guess the ocean's quite a big space. Chances are good. Yeah. Chances are really good, which is horrible to say. Mm. Like, we're getting one plastic item every six seconds here in Sydney Harbour, and we're in a first world country, and the harbour looks clean. And it, it, it is relatively clean, but you're comparing that to, say, Jakarta or somewhere. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, microplastics are like an unseen problem that you can only find when you start filtering. Yeah, it's, and I guess it compounds on all the other plastic that we're just constantly in contact with, like at the supermarket, or your strawberries are wrapped in plastic, or your bag of grapes, or whatever it may be, and that's apparently, from what I've heard, is seeping into your food a little bit. Yeah, chemicals in plastics to to make sure that it doesn't break down and your food doesn't go off or you know, just stopping UV or something. And some of these chemicals are really detrimental to our health mm. and we're just learning about it. But um, Yeah, and st sterility as well for guys, I've heard that plastic's not good for, yeah, that's, that's one thing that I've heard um, quite a lot is, yeah, Yeah, but fertility. the other thing that really shits me is um, you get a lot of people jump up and down on their like, you know, ideology of like fuck plastic and plastic sucks, get it out of your life, but you can't because we've built an entire world based around plastic. Like I'm looking around me now, I've got plastic headphones on, speaking into a plastic microphone with my stainless steel water bottle that has a plastic cap on it. Um, I've got a MacBook Pro sitting next to me with plastic, you know, keyboard and I flew on a plane, I have plastic money, I used to have a credit card and Plastic is integral to the life that we've built. And so if we were just smarter and more responsible about the design, the material, and then how we use it, like, with the world would be a lot better place. The problem isn't plastic. The problem, the problem is humans. Mm. 
the plastic is a symptom of, like, if humans were smarter, we wouldn't have plastics in the ocean. We wouldn't even have climate change. So it's, uh, it's yeah. kind of laziness, isn't it, really? Yeah, it's uh, ignorance. We don't know. Humans yeah. just sort of push it to the limit, and then we survival kicks in, and we try and fix it. But um, yeah, so the the actual the real the real solution to any of our problems, including plastic, is uh, a change in our human behaviour. Yeah, for sure. It's our relationship with that plastic, not necessarily plastic itself. Like, and just those little things that you can fix, like the supermarket stuff. Just, I don't, I don't understand why a, a watermelon, or that's probably not the best analogy, but something that's already got a hard shell, like you know, that's nature's made to be protected, is then wrapped again in plastic because some yeah, Karen yeah. doesn't like a. Some some of that is you know dictated by the. Um, the food industry, health, and, you know, there's regulations and, um, you know, we don't need bananas in a plastic bag and, you know, some stuff we do need in plastic, uh, you know, just for safety reasons and, but, yeah, I don't know, there's so much shit that we don't need, you know. Keep cups, amazing. Water bottles, amazing. You know, just ditching straws, like, wow. Yeah. No brainers. Yeah, completely. I was in um, Fiji for my mum's 70th a few months ago and they just had um, uh, like coconut, like bamboo straws. Oh, Those yeah. things are so good because, you know, paper straws, they're a good like, alternative, but they kind of lose shape. And, yeah. But these, um, these bamboo ones are epic, so good. Yeah. So, like, all these problems just create beautiful opportunities for new innovation, for new ideas, new practices, you know, getting rid of shitty, lazy practices is epic so I don't know I'm like an eternal optimist as much as I you know try and stay grounded and yeah what um what do you guys do with all that plastic you collect as well just um good question and it's, it's not a very good answer but uh we put it into the uh landfill wheelie bins on on our um at our, where we operate with our clients because there is no commercially available um technology or waste sorting to separate the millions of microplastics from each other because each uh, you have different materials like uh, HDPE, polypropylene, ABS, nylon 6 and each material, uh, each uh, different plastic property is different to each other so you can't really mix it um, and then it's mixed up with organics so seaweed or leaves or lawn clippings and the only way that we can do this at the moment to get rid of it is to send it, it either goes to landfill, which isn't very good, um, or it, be, it, it gets incinerated and turned into energy, which is the better of, you know, two evils. But, you know, so we're chicken or the egg, like, we need to get it out of the water, but we don't have enough money or resource to create a recycling facility or something. And so, yeah, unfortunately, uh, everything goes to uh, be incinerated or to landfill. Yeah, I guess a lot of it's contaminated, so the site recycling facilities couldn't yeah, so touch it. We're, yeah, we've, we've, um, we've had a ton of startups that are like, hey, we'll take the waste, we'll do this and that. And we give it to them, they're like, oh, we can't use it, it's all mixed, it's contaminated, it's got oil in it, it's got fuel, it's got this and that. We can't separate the micros. And uh, yeah, it's a bit sad, but it's a huge opportunity for someone. Um, but, you know, where we put the sea bins is where all the crap accumulates naturally. So you'll have leaves with plastic bags, with oil and fuel and, like, just all sorts of nastiness and chemicals. And, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's pretty hectic. For sure. Um, speaking about garbage collecting in the one spot, um, I know you'd be very familiar with the work of Bjorn Slat, probably butchered his name, but... Um, Boyan. Boyan. Yeah. <laughs> and um, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Yeah, have you, have you given much thought to this project or have you ever been in contact with him or what's kind of your thoughts on the whole, the whole yeah. thing? Yeah, I've, I've met Boyan a few times and uh, mates with a lot of his senior leadership teams and had a beer with him over in LA last time I was there and we have some uh, small projects related to data um, together with Ocean Cleanup and ourselves. And uh, yeah, I mean, so many people put shit on Boyan for 
just being an idiot and a dreamer, you know, that'll never work, why are you even bothered? And the people that, a majority of people that put shit on Boyan for having a go was from the science and research community. And these are adults that are smart and intelligent. And, uh, and they were just putting shit on him for years until, like, he, he made some design changes, he made a major pivot, and they clocked over 200 tonnes yesterday of crap coming out of the Pacific. And now the same people that are putting shit on him are saying it's fake news and it's like fake plastic because it doesn't have enough barnacles and this and that. And uh, yeah, but like I, I applaud that dude. and Fuck yeah, he's gone for it and he made it work and he had enough resilience to like just follow his own gut. And that comes back to this saying that um, the person says that it, what, Shit, I always butcher this stuff. The person that says it can't be done shouldn't interrupt the person doing it. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, those guys are epic. They're cleaning up rivers uh, in developing countries, and then they're cleaning up offshore. And uh, we just didn't have the resource. Uh, we, we didn't have enough cash to focus on a developing country because uh, we needed money to sell sea bins, and plastic pollution is a developing... Uh, is not a priority in a developing country. In a developing country, you have priorities such as clean water, access to energy, um, food, slavery. These are like hectic priorities that they have to deal with. So plastic is at the bottom. Uh, in a country like Australia, you know, we're developed. Um, plastic pollution is our problem because we, you know, we got it pretty good. And uh, so we figured we'd concentrate on G20 countries. Um, try and get the proof of concept, try and get the cash, the impact, you know, scalable, and then we can start looking at developing countries and how we can assist. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because probably where, the, where it's worst is at those developing countries because they don't have the structure and infrastructure to, to do anything. I'm just thinking about, I was in Bali last year, Madawi, and I've never seen anything like it. The whole beach, they must have been onshore for a day because the whole beach was like full plastic. And even in Morocco, like in the middle of nowhere, we're going to this, this waterfall. It's called Paradise Falls. It was like one of their biggest tourist attractions. And the whole side of the water, like the whole walk up to where the main part of the waterfall was, was just completely filled. Like every two steps, there'd be a little chunk of plastic like stuck together. And yeah. you're meant to be seeing one of the most beautiful attractions in Morocco. And it was like the... Yeah, for me, the definitely the, the beauty was taken out of it just by thinking about what the fuck a human's doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's hectic. Um, and, uh, you know, the, some of the problems is, like, they don't have enough money to purchase, you know, a, a product that, you know, like, some of, the pe some of the families in Morocco and Indonesia, they don't have enough money to buy, like, a, a two-litre shampoo bottle of shampoo, so they buy sachets for like, you know, five cents or 10 cents at a time, but they're wrapped in plastic. You know, it comes back to the economics and how much money you have and how much resource and, you know, waste disposal. But like my, my um, I've got this thing in my head and it's like quite controversial, is if you're Coca-Cola and you're selling Coca-Cola bottles to a country that doesn't have recycling, you should build something to sell your product. Otherwise you're just stuffing waste into a room that can't get out, you know, it's just, it'll be overflowing and yeah, it's really sad, but um, for sure, huge, huge opportunities, you know, to, for people to fix this. And, and yeah, I think there should be that corporate responsibility, like they make enough money, what do they do with it? Like, where, where do they keep it all? What do they, they should be building shit like that to try and balance what, what they're doing on the other end. Like it just doesn't make sense that they, they aren't, it's a really good point. Um, Talking about some of the other kind of really important environmental players that are, are, that are starting up in Australia, um, we've got Sea Forest down in Tasmania. I had sea trees on the, the podcast the other week who are replanting reef and kelp throughout the world. Um, do you have any favourite environmental projects um, that you're currently looking, looking at? Yeah, yeah, we've got one huge one that's changing, it's going to change the world and it's going to change us for the better which is, um, so you have the carbon market. The carbon market has been around for a while. Um, it's now worth 
$830 billion. So it's, a, it's proof of concept that you, it's, it's profitable and, and you can invest into something that repairs the environment. But the carbon market is focused on carbon, which is great and it's much needed. But the question for a while by some really intelligent people was, okay, what about the rest of nature? You've proven that you can repair nature and make it profitable by selling offsets and credits. And there's a lot of controversy attached to that. There's people cheating the system, um, people screwing over the system. And, uh, but from there, there's been a lot of learnings. And so now a biodiversity market is emerging, which is if you can repair nature um, and you can measure the metrics of it, then you can do the same as the carbon market. And so it's all been driven, and the carbon market as well was driven by um, consumerism. So uh, let's say we've got two water bottles that are, are similar price points, one's 10 bucks and one's 11 bucks, and the $11 one cleans, uh, plants trees or saves the koalas or it you know, cleans up the oceans, like I will buy the $11 one every time. And so this is impact and nature repair is now becoming part of uh, uh, marketing strategies to sell more widgets. And so, but if you're making a water bottle and you want to plant trees, but you don't actually plant trees, so you go and find someone that does and you give them money to plant trees. So they plant the trees, the environment gets better, the person that makes the water bottle looks better and gets more customers so they sell more water bottles, but it's a win-win-win. And so that's where we're at with the biodiversity market where if you can repair nature or do nature positive you know, um, uh, work, like it's profitable. And this is going to change the world for the better and businesses, not-for-profits, people doing beach cleanups that can measure what they're doing can now like have an income stream as well from that selling credits. So yeah, so that, that's where we're at is uh, sort of, we've, we've been selling data for two years and it's amazing. We never thought we would do that. And, uh, and now this market is emerging where we're like, holy shit, you know, we can formalize what we do and, and just take this thing next level. Well, it's really interesting. Um... I'm thinking about like I do a beach clean up every month with a group of people. I'm just thinking about like a company just sponsoring like a local little community group, like it's kind of like yeah. a marketplace for it. That's yeah. a pretty pretty cool idea. Yeah, and so they they're like you know, hey guys, we're going to give you ten thousand dollars. You're going to clean up the beach, but you have to give us the metrics. How many ciggy butts? How many straws? How many whatevers? They will take that information in the form of data and then they will put that into their marketing or their NDU reporting or they have a sustainability budget and they can prove that they've done something positive for nature. But then, you know, the beach cleanup group, they're getting money to do more stuff or buy more equipment or, you know, do more cleanups. Like, it's, it's, it's fucking epic. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, on that, is there much kind of talk and collaboration between guys like you and... You know, you said you met Boy and Slap, but is there like kind of a community of ecopreneurs that um, that get together and you're kind of all working, you know, all communicating about ideas you're going on, or is it just you get so busy that you're just staying in your lane and just trying to get your team together and doing things? Yeah, there's a bit of both, and yeah. um, I got a mate, uh, Mike Smith. He started a company called Zeroco. Yeah, I've heard of the okay. Yeah, yeah, it's it's epic, and so we we get together for a beer, or we're trying to go for a surf, and you know we're talking about all our you know individual problems. Like predominantly, we we operate in silos. You know, we're just in the trenches trying to make shit work, hustling, and uh, it gets really lonely. And so you reach out to your mates or whatever, and you go, and, you know, just let it out. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, there's a bit of that, but what there also is is a huge amount of jealousy and and weirdness in the environmental sector where oh you know take three for the sea they only pick up three things we pick up six things you know we're doing better and oh his data isn't good because of this and that and you know we came into this 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 new sector really positive and just saw them this politics and jealousy that is really counterproductive for the environment and uh yeah it's pretty gross but it's only it's only a little bit of the environmental or climate tech or you know clean tech sector, but 
Yeah, I mean, for us the challenge was traditionally people don't share data because that's their asset. They need to get research money or grants and so we, I, I, I purposely made CBIN to be a for-profit so we would have independence, financial security, independence, whatever. Um, and so I built it so that when we had data we could make it open source, so school kids, like anyone from the public can see it, but then we still need to monetize it, so we, um, we, we have to work out how to make a subscription model to, to make money, to make the data, to do the impact and you know this. So we think we've found a really good model where we have open access and we can still monetize the data uh, with corporates for, say, credits, but then we use the data with local, state and federal um, government to, to introduce new laws and policies and and uh, yeah, so yeah, partnerships, partnering for success is absolutely critical. It's just you come across a few dickheads and a few bad seeds and uh, it's just dodging those ones. But generally, yeah, it's, it, it's a pretty epic, pretty yeah. optimistic crowd. But yeah, That's cool. It's a, it's a bummer considering like, the work everyone is doing is so good. You'd think that everyone, you'd hope that everyone's just supportive and just trying to grow the pie rather than wanting their slice of the pie because... Who cares at the end of the day as long as you're kind of growing the pie and everyone's doing better for the environment. That seems well, like it, the logical win-win. Um, it, it just, honestly, it comes back to money where, um, you know, you, you got uh, $600,000, we only got $10,000. Why'd you get that? How come we didn't get it? Um, you know, we're not going to give you our data because we need to get $600,000 next year. Like, it, it literally just comes back to funding. And um, I was at a... a what was it, like an Ocean Business Leaders Summit maybe a month ago, and there was, half the room was science and academia and research, and the other half was business and investors, and there was a general vibe of like, well, the, the oceans aren't being invested in, and we're not getting enough money, and the investment system's broken, and I was like, well, no, it's not. Um, your business model is broken because you're doing research and academia, and if you want investment, like the investor wants to get a return, they want their money back, they want 10x or whatever. And so, you know, how do you break that stigma? You need to create a business model that makes money. And money doesn't have to be evil, like money makes the world go round, it's just how you do it, right? That's it. Um, talking about money and kind of all the, the corporations and government um, that are involved in, in, um, that, you know, really make a lot of the big kind of decisions and, and legislation that will impact how much plastic does get made and goes out into the world. Like, what, what are some of the big things that you hope from government and corporation that we can really um, nail down kind of in the next five to ten years to, to kind of give that structure going forward to a, a reduced plastic world? Yeah, well... It's a really good question and um, I've got a really weird answer for it, but it's up to us, each person, to demand and we, we vote with our money. Um, government doesn't really act until there's a crisis or something hits like a tipping point and there's a disaster and then they, they, they move or they move when the community gets together and makes a big noise on a message, right? So. The bag ban only happened because people were refusing it and people wanted it and there was lobbying and blah 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 but it all comes from communities banding together on the same message and then you know the politicians listen because if they don't they'll probably be voted out the next year and uh, so it all starts with ourselves it's not waiting for government to to bring in a law because we're the ones that like you know we're the ones that make the noise so um, I don't know, it's, uh, we, we can't continue how we're going because Coke bottles are in the environment, Coke bottles are breaking down, plastic straws. Um, I, I don't know the full answer to it, but it all comes back to communities um, making some noise and getting together on a message that can't be ignored. Yeah. Uh, I think that's yeah, really well said and I guess a really good example of that would be like fight for the bite. Everyone, kind of, all the coastal communities got together and made sure that Equinor didn't get um, 
the permits to kind of drill off the coast of Australia just like those little grassroot things that build momentum I just wish that kind of case could be replicated more and more with like other issues but it feels like we need something really dramatic to happen like you said to kind of kick everyone into action yeah and it's sad like why can't the government just be progressive normal good humans that put the environment first and put their fucking egos second you know yeah, I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know any of the... It's weird because you talk to your mates and you're just like, everyone's on the same wavelength. And then you're like, you're so you're removed from that potential conversation and action of happening. But like you just speak to any good person and it just makes so much sense to do more. But yeah. The good, the good news is that, you know, the, the coal-loving Scott Morrisons are being voted out and, you know, they're on a shelf, a short shelf life really. And there's a new generation coming through that are a lot smarter than, like, the rest of us. And uh, as it changes, government changes because they need votes. So you've got millions of, you know, kids that are about to hit voting age. Um, and you're a politician. You need to start listening to them because they'll vote you out. And if you're a politician, I don't know how many mortgages or houses you've got, but, you know, you're doing that because... You know, you've got to pay the bills as well. And, uh, yeah, if you don't listen, you're out. So, like, literally, the world is changing around us, but just not quick enough. It's glacial speed, and it really shits me, but I'm, I'm optimistic at the same time. But it, I wish it would, you know, happen a bit faster. Yeah. No, I'm glad to hear you're optimistic anyway. It's reassuring for me as someone that gets to see so much of the data firsthand and, and someone that's kind of looked up to see being um, really well summarised. Awesome, mate. We just kind of finished the podcast with a few quick fire questions. Um, if you're going to give your 16 year old self any life advice, what would it be? Oh man, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't give myself any advice to be honest, because you're where you're at in life for a reason. Like if I didn't pay attention at school, you know, at the time, like, and if I went back and paid attention, I probably wouldn't be sitting here. Like I might be in a better position or worse. I don't know, but. You know, every, everything happens in life for a reason, and uh, I, God, I don't, I don't know what I'd tell myself. Um, I don't know. Surf more. <laughs> Surf more. Yeah, nice. I think you said it really well before when you're like, I just trust in my gut. Um, that's, that's always a really uh, good one. You know what? I, I would give myself something if I was to go back and say, hey, Pete, it would be just believe in yourself more and and don't don't take any pressure of other people's ideas or peer group pressure or you know trying to look cool like if I could be comfortable in my own skin at 16 that would have been epic you know but it's like you know you're a teenager and growing up and there's a lot of pressure and you know if you want to look like a goose like you know you, you wouldn't do it when you're 16 because people would be like dude looks a bit weird but yeah I, I would be like you know, just just believe in yourself and have that confidence. Yeah, that's cool. If you could have dinner with one person dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh, this is so hectic, hey, but um, I'm not cheating, but I've already actually had lunch with him a couple of times, but I was so in awe that I asked the dumbest questions and repeated myself so many times. <laughs> and it was the founder of Patagonia, Yvonne no Chouinard, who I'd met a couple of times, and... He is just this ginormous energy ball of a person and he's really small but like at the time he was telling me how he was suing Donald Trump for screwing the environment and they knew that they were putting millions of dollars into this law case that they would never win but they were doing it just to piss Donald Trump off. And, uh, and I just asked the stupidest questions and sat there in awe, like a little, you know, full nervous and that. And I wish I could go back and have dinner or lunch with him again, you know, have like better conversation on my side. That's sick. I can't believe you've met him. That's so all time. Um, if you had to ride one surfboard for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? One surfboard, that's like the Lord of the Rings wandering through the world of <laughs> That's it, you've got to think about it. There's a lot to take in there, different conditions. Yeah, so I, I grew up pretty poor. So, in, like, my first surfboard was like 180 bucks. And, like, I, I've only 
I haven't had many brand new surfboards or customs in my life, but so what that meant was I was always like, you know, finding shitty boards and stuff and I found like the most fun on single fins or just old school big volume boards that you could surf one foot to twelve foot on. And like I'm running a bit of a dad board at the moment and uh, so I'm looking for, you know, leaders and volume and I've got this 6.8, you know, it's probably like three inches thick, but you can do turns, you pull in, you get barreled, or you can like, you know, shimmy forwards and pretend you're Jerry Lopez and just, you know, you can't do turns, so you just try and be stylish or something. Um, so, but yeah, any, anything that gets like, gets me stoked from knee high to like, you know, double overhead, and then I start like shitting my pants. But I'd, I'd be like a 6.8 with like 38, 39 litres of volume and like a couple little side fins on the singly. Epic. Jerry Lopez stays. That's so good. I can't do that, but I try. Like, yeah. in my head, I'm like, yeah, I'm killing it. But if you, yeah. Don't watch, don't watch the video back. No, no, no. It, but, <laughs> um, if you had to travel uh, one country for a surf, if you'd had one remaining surf trip left in life, which is heavy to think about because you've got plenty, but uh, what would it be and why? Australia, 100%. I've travelled the world for 12 years, I would go around the world, like literally I would go around the globe three times a year uh, for work and uh, I, I can't even remember the amount of countries I've been to and um, surfed in like most of them and I haven't seen enough of Australia, I haven't surfed uh, you know, South, South Australia, I used to live in um, Perth, surf Margies and stuff but there is so much coastline with so much diversity of waves and terrain, desert, rainforest. Um, I'd need to see more of Oz and we've just got it like so good here in Australia. You know, you've got Superbank right, Superbank lefts and just like everything in between. Yeah. Yeah. Truly the luckiest country in the world for many reasons, for sure. Um, where do you see the future of the oceans going? Um, I totally just see this incredible trillion dollar economy being built out of a biodiversity market the one where you know if you're repairing anything coastline wetlands mangroves whatever you know like a carbon market this is a trillion dollar market opportunity and if it's profitable to invest in repairing nature the ocean is going to flourish and so it's going to be fine we've got to you know, we've got a few years to turn it around, it's going to get pretty shit, it's going to get messy, uh, there's a lot of politics involved, but ultimately, like, we're going to be fine. So Yeah, awesome, mate. That's um, so reassuring to hear, and um, thanks so much for your time, all that heaps, as always, and, um, yeah, really deeply appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cheers. enjoyed this episode of ocean matters podcast powered by board socks then please don't forget to rate review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts we would be incredibly grateful to keep this show moving in the right direction and to keep spreading the word and the stories of the ocean's beautiful powers to people from all walks of life